Chapter 31 of Zefloya. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anthony Gerges of the Tide Pod Podcast. Zefloya by Charlotte Dacker. Chapter 31. Some time had now elapsed since Victoria had been the associate of banditti, the vile and lawless outcasts of society. Her constant companion and presumed lover, a vile moor, introduced originally to her notice in a menial capacity. Banished from the world by her crimes and her vices and seeking, in the depth of an almost unfathomable obscurity safety from the punishment their due. Such was now the situation of one, whose early character and propensities naturally evil, required in youth the strong curb of virtuous example to reprove, and ultimately reform them. Maternal imprudence and maternal indiscretion, by destroying the bonds of respect, rendered abortive all future attempt to preserve from baleful example the hopeless victim of premature corruption. Thus too noble emulation was perished, and with the character became identified as cureless habits, errors which time and strict education would have withered in the germ. In the moments of solitude which occurred but seldom, the wretched Victoria, reflecting upon her early youth, what she might have been and what she was, cursed, terrible to say, the mother that had weakly indulged, and then by her own example, tempted and destroyed her. During the whole of the time that she had resided among the condottieri, never once had she beheld the countenance of their chief. Yet in her absence, Zofloya had said that he unmasked. He hath a reason, added he, for concealing his features from you. But time will develop all, and then you will know it. In manners, however, the haughty chief was considerably changed. He seemed to have remarked and approved the terms on which Victoria and the Moor continued to live. Ever delicately respectful in his presence, though incomparably tender at other times, was the manner of Zefloya towards her. The more distant indeed, the more reserved and punctilious he appeared. The more did the chief unbend, and the more appear pleased. But if by a word or even a look he expressed aught of tenderness or warmth, then did he become agitated lay his hand upon his dagger, or start uneasily from his chair. In his voice there was something powerfully awakened the attention of Victoria. His manner affected her less for its solemnity than for other reasons which she could not define, and she would at times have given the universe for a glance at his features. As for the mistress of the chief, her manners underwent a considerable change. She behaved to Victoria with civility, sometimes even with attention, but at others particularly in the absence of the chief, she would regard her with a look that wanted only the power of destroying. The Moors of Floya occasionally accompanied a chosen troop of the bandit in their adventurous excursions among the Alps, and Victoria could not avoid observing that when he did so. They were such generally as were esteemed most desperate, and were most in repute for their ferocity and contempt of life 
such too as were considered by the rest capable of any enormity, and troubled neither with the weakness of compassion, qualms of conscience, or a distaste to bloodshed. They were in fact ruffians rather than robbers, and the bloodhounds of the band. These Zafloya chose to select, when he went forth with any, and unanimously they swore, that when he was among them, they felt impelled to deeds which otherwise would have remained unattempted. One gloomy evening, seated on the declivity of a mountain, Victoria reflected involuntarily upon this circumstance. She loved yet trembled at the inscrutables of Floya, but lost and abandoned seeking an object to fix on, she yielded without struggle to his fascinations. That he loved her she believed, yet such was the dignity, sometimes haughty repulsiveness of his manners, that even in the softest moods she watched the turning of his eye with secret dread, fearing and dubious of what the next moment might produce. Never even had she been completely at ease with him. There was always a proud reserve about him, in the midst of his tenderness. His softness resembled more the condescension of a superior than the devotion of a lover. Strange, mysterious being, she mentally exclaimed. Thy looks, thy words, thine actions have ever to me been indefinable. Better, ah, better perhaps it were, she added with a sigh, that I had never known thee. She paused. Her ideas reverted to her past life. She retraced its black and disastrous career. Ah, mother, mother, she cried, all is attributable to thee. Why didst thou, when in early youth, when my passions were strong and my judgment weak, why didst thou imprudently bring before my eyes scenes to inflame my soul, and set my senses maddening? It was thou first taughtest me to put not check nor restraint upon the incitement of unholy love. Twas thy example, too, which caused me to deem lightly of the marriage vow. Thy heart wandered from its allegiance to thy husband. My heart wandered from mine. Thy husband dined through means of thee. Mine died by poison, which I administered. Yet wherefore do I thus retrace, she added, casting herself upon the mountain. Do I repent me of that which I have done? No. I regret only the state to which circumstance have reduced me. Wretch that I am, Zofloya, O oh Zofloya, thou hast helped on my destruction. Yet am I now so bound, so trammeled to thee? By what magic arts I know not. That though at this moment I feel strong wish to fly thee, yet it is counteracted by conviction that the attempt is impossible. She sighed deeply, then in a mournful voice resumed, Here must I wait thy coming, for into the cavern I will not descend. The gloomy silence of the chief oppresses my soul while the now cool, now ferocious looks of the mistress throw my senses into confusion. She remained still prostrate on the side of the mountain, till wearied with grievous and unavailing reflection, she closed her eyes. By degrees sleep stole over her faculties, and she dreamed that gliding lightly over the highest rocks, she beheld a beautiful and seraphic form approach. When it came near, it seemed to her that her eyes could not sustain the exceeding brilliancy which shot from the countenance, 
the hair and the garments of the celestial vision. Victoria, it pronounced in a sweet and awful voice. I am thy good genius. I come to warn thee at this moment, because it is the first for many years in which a spark of repentance hath visited thy guilt-benighted soul. The Almighty, who wishes to save his creatures from destruction, permits that I appear before thee. If thou wilt forsake even yet the dark and thorny path of sin, if thou wilt endeavour by thy future life to make amends for the terrible list of the past, even yet shalt thou be saved. But above all, thou must fly, the Morzofloia who is not what he seems. At that instant, Victoria saw beneath the feet of the resplendent vision, the Moors of Floya. He lay prostrate, stripped of his gaudy habiliments, and appearing monstrous and deformed. Still, she recognized him for Zofloya. Attend, pursued the angel. Fly immediately, the false pretended Moor and heaven will direct thy steps. Retire for a while from the world, look into thine heart. Repent, and thy sins shall be forgiven thee. Yet mark, and louder thunder seemed to rattle from above. If thou pursuest thy present path, speedy death and eternal destruction will be thine. As the splendid form pronounced these words, the earth opening at its feet shewed an immeasurable abyss. Down headlong it spurned the moor, who uttering terrific yells which echoed through the mountains, sunk struggling from view. The celestial vision ascended, pointing as it rose its fair finger to heaven. The awful voice of the thunder solemnity sounded. The dazzled eyes of Victoria beheld the heavens open as the spirit drew towards them. The music of the spheres in loud choral harmony struck for an instant on her ravished ears. Her high-wrought fancy could bear no more, and she awoke. Opening her eyes, she beheld that all around her was still and gloomy, yet so far was she possessed by her dream, that even yet she beheld a stream of radiance in the air, and fancied she could identify that spot in the sky at which the angel entered his bright abode. Celestial shapes and sparkling coruscations still swarm in her view, and when she closed her eyes she saw them with increased brilliancy in imagination's eye. By degrees, the vividness of her impression subsided. She felt ashamed to yield observance to a dream, yet still her soul was touched. But whither, and how can I fly, she cried. Yet destruction awaits me if I stay. Oh no, it cannot be. I will not yield thus to a vision, a frolic of the fancy. Let loose when the senses slumber, and for that to quit Zofloya. Ungrateful Victoria, no, I feel that to be impossible. Scarce had the unhappy Victoria pronounced these words when darting from a cleft in the mountain, the moor appeared before her. Even through the dusky gloom, Victoria beheld the fire which sparkled in his eyes. His whole figure seemed more proudly dignified, more lofty than even. If she hesitated before to adopt the conduct, she was warned to pursue that hesitation now vanished. She remembered her dream no longer. The presence of Zofloya put reflection and consideration to flight. He took her hand and in a gentle voice said, 
You would not forsake me, Victoria. Victoria started, for this remark implied a knowledge of her thoughts. How is this, Sofloya? she said, and faintly smiled. You seem to read. Your thoughts, fair creature, added the moor, and have I not always read them? True, true, said the embarrassed Victoria, but how? No matter, cried the moor, you are mine, I have gained you, and lose you now I neither can nor will. You do not hate me, Victoria. Victoria replied not. Her thoughts were confused respecting the moor, and again a sentiment of fear predominated over every other sensation. Come, he resumed, nothing checked by her silence. Come, let us remain here no longer, but return to our home. It is more cheerful than this gloom, my Victoria, and will disperse thy melancholy. He passed her arm gently round her waist and led her on. Though her scruples ceased to occupy her, her heart was oppressed, and she could not speak. In softest language, the more addressed her as they walked. By degrees, the sweet tones of his harmonious voice, his honeyed flattery, and his soft attentions produced their wonted effect. Again, the changing Victoria began to feel irresistibly riveted to him and the more from the temporary gloom that had affected her in his absence. "'Wert thou always with me, Zofloya?' she at length said in a low voice, as they approached the cavern. "'Black melancholy and gloomy visions would never agitate my soul.' Zofloya pressed her hand. "'While thou livest,' said he, "'I will remain with thee, and death shall have no power to tear thee from me.' They now entered the cave, in the midst of a few straggling bandits sat the chief, still masked, with his bold companion by his side, showily habited and looking the wild genius of the terrible abode. The chief sat solemn and reserved, listening rather than partaking in the conversation of his band. Some of them sat cross-legged, some reclined, talking over deeds of bloody outrage, while the red firelight cast upon their marked features an additional tinge of ferocity. Victoria seated herself among them, and the moor took his station beside her, though at a respectful distance. The chief looked towards them, not unkindly, but did not speak. His fierce companion scowled upon Victoria, to whose features exercise and agitation had given an unusual brilliancy. The look, as usual, caused a thousand dim remembrances to rush into the mind of Victoria. For an instant she almost identified the countenance before her, but at all events returned the malignant glance with visible contempt and indignation. Fire flashed from the eyes of the female. She half rose, but the chief, who silently observed both, caught her arm and restrained her on her seat. At this instant three loud distinct knocks were heard outside the door. One of the robbers started up and returned them on the inside with the hilt of his stiletto then sounded, without, the loud shrill of the horn, and the robber instantly touching a spring, the door flew open. Several of the bandit entered, and in the midst of them was a female, supported by the leaning on the arm of one of them. Her figure, though faded, was still beautiful. Her features were haggard and pale. Tears streamed down her cheeks, and on her temple appeared a wound, from whence the blood flowed over her bosom, which was bare and cruelly bruised. Her long, dark hair hung wild and disheveled. Her clothes were torn to tatters, and one fair arm, gashed at the wrist, hung uselessly by her side. 
This miserable object was led, or rather brought into the midst of the assembly. The chief drew near and regarded her for a few moments with agitated but steadfast air. Then, staggering back several paces, he laid his hand upon his heart with convulsive emotion. Is it possible? In a voice of smothered agony, he cried. Hardly had he spoken, when more of the band rushed in with daggers drawn in their right hands, and securing with their left a man of tall majestic figure, in whose countenance was discernible traces of the deepest rage, the most gloomy ferocity. In an instant the attention of the chief was attracted towards him. He gazed no longer on the pitiable object before him, but approached with uneven pace the stranger thus forcibly secured. Scarce could he seem to fix his eyes upon his countenance, ere he recoiled, horror-struck, then hastily returned and looked again, as doubting the testimony of his senses. Now he appeared dreadfully convinced, his whole frame trembled with violent emotion. Madly impelled, as it were, he snatched the stiletto from his belt. He rushed towards the unarmed stranger, and tearing him from the grasp of the banditti, with the strength of a raging lion, he buried it to the hilt in his panting bosom. At this, the wounded female, uttering a cry of horror, sunk upon the floor, but, as if new strung by this very circumstance, the chief with tenfold fury tore the reeking dagger from the breast of the stranger, and plunged it unnumbered times in different parts of his body. The band perceiving this unusual and sanguinary violence on the part of the chief, and that he no longer required of them to secure the object of his rage, resigned entirely the hold they had resumed, and retired to a distant. Exhausted then by horrible and repeated wounds, the stranger sunk down, bathed in his blood. The chief bent over him, still gasping with unsated vengeance. He knelt on his mangled form, and with his left hand pinioned him to the earth, then raising his dagger high, transfixed it in the center of his panting heart. Die, infamous and thrice damned villain, he cried in a tremendous voice. Thus die, for this moment I importuned incessantly just heaven, and heaven in its justice has at length granted my prayer. As he uttered these words, he tore off his mask, and throwing back his plumed helm, Victoria recognized her brother, now, wretched Victoria, he cried, gazing full upon her with stern and piercing eyes. Dost thou know me, and dost thou know the wretch who lies there weltering in his blood? Him who within this instant, he exultingly cried, has met by my hand the punishment his due. Dost thou not know him, methinks, unhappy girl, thou shouldst remember, Ardolf, the vile Ardolf, the betrayer of thy miserable mother? of that mother who now lies extended on the ground, in the wretched person of that dying female. Victoria was on the point of speaking, when Leonardo, rushing wildly towards the bleeding body of Ardolf, exclaimed with a convulsive laugh, What? Did the wretch hope to escape forever the vengeance of my soul? Villain and coward, he pursued, spurning the body with his foot that put thy trust for safety in the weakness of my youthful arm. Didst thou believe it would remain forever weak, and that thy infamy would pass unpunished? To rob us of our mother, to destroy our father, and to blast forever the fair honor and the happiness of their children. Ah, villain and coward, didst thou dare to hope that the young, boyish Leonardo would forget thee? No, no, 
He whose soul could feel disgrace and injury sufficiently to fly the spot where it had overwhelmed his miserable family, could never, never forget the wretch who had caused it, could never forget those accursed features stamped in indelible characters upon his burning brain. No, no, I tell thee, nor age, not time, nor circumstances could hide thee with veils so thick that outraged honor could not pierce it, a Venetian's outraged honor. For this blessed hour my young heart panted, for this my mature feelings increasing as I grew in bitter sense of the wrong done us, and in the desire of revenge longed with wilder enthusiasm. For this I implored heaven, and heaven, he cried, falling on his knees, while a fierce but noble enthusiasm burnt in his eyes. Heaven has listened to me. Father, my injured father, thy wrongs are avenged, he smiled exultingly, on the disfigured corpse of the once gay but now justly punished Ardolf, and arose from his knees. At this moment the wretched Lorena uttered a faint sigh. Leonard started and appeared recalled to himself. He clasped his hands and tears started to his eyes. He approached his wretched mother and Victoria followed. Between them they raised her in their arms. Leonardo turned fiercely towards the silent though surprised banditti, who stood around and in an angry voice exclaimed, Which among ye have dared thus to maltreat a female? Not any of us, in one voice answered the banditti. How came she thus wounded? One of the band stepped forward and replied, We had wandered far and were returning homewards, when loud shrieks from a distant first called our attention. We turned again and hastened to the spot from whence they appeared to proceed. There we discovered him who lies bleeding yonder, cruelly beating the signora. On perceiving us, he attempted to drag her forward. She fell and cut her temple against the point of a rock. On this he redoubled his blows and barbarously kicked her. The signora must have upon her head wounds more dangerous than that which is apparent. We secured the inhuman signor, however while some of our bravos seized the mules and baggage, which were following at a distance. They could not retain possession, however, without encountering the servants and muleteers, whom they soon routed, some one way or some another. We then, No more, cried the chief haughtily. I have heard enough. The offended bravo bit his lips, and muttered somewhat between his teeth to Zafloya, who stood beside him, and regarded him with an approving air. What? How sayest thou, villain? exclaimed Leonardo passionately. I say we did our duty, and peace, base-born ruffian, cried the chief. I hear no more. The vindictive bravo laid his hand upon his dagger. The action was not unnoted by Leonardo. He left the feeble Lorena in the arms of Victoria, and rushing towards him with one blow, leveled him to the earth. Insolent ruffian, he cried. Darest thou rebel against thy chief? Lend me a dagger, he called aloud. It shall drink his heart's blood. Seventy hands at once tendered their daggers. Leonardo, seizing one, brandished it for a moment over the prostrate robber, then seeming to consider the object unworthy, checked his rage, and bade him rise. The wily robber rose upon his knees, and crossing his arms upon his bosom, declined his head in token of submission. The chief threw the weapon from him with a smile of contempt. Thou art unworthy of death from my hand, he cried. Arise, reptile. The robber rose on his feet and joined his comrades with a sullen air. Leonardo returned to his mother. He regarded her with an air of pity and supporting her in his arms, brought her forward and offered her wine to her lips. 
The wretched Lorena swallowed a little, and it appeared to revive her. Leonardo then commanded that a bed should be prepared, the very best that the cavern could afford. When ready, with his own hands, he endeavored to render it more commodious. But still it was a sorry couch for one who had till now reposed on beds of down and made the grievous transition at a period like the present. On this, however, her languid limbs were stretched. The wounds on her head were bathed and her gastrist bound up. All these tender offices were performed by Leonardo, while Victoria stood silently by regarding her wretched mother with a stern, unpitying air, or, wholly indifferent to what was passing, conversed with Zofloya in another part of the cavern. At length, the miserable Lorena sunk into the chamber, and Leonardo, quitting then her lowly couch, rejoined his companions. Supper was prepared, and while partaking of it, those of the bandit that had been out detailed more of the large particulars of the evening's adventure. Little more of moment was, however, related than what the Bravo had already specified. Still, Leonardo listened with the deepest attention, making, however, no comment while Victoria, terrible to say, seemed to exult in the awful fate that had overtaken her deeply punished mother. The wine passed briskly about. The banditti resigned themselves by degrees to the arms of sleep, reclining round the expiring embers of the fire. Victoria retired to her usual place of rest, while Leonardo, motioning his female companion to retire, approached the uneasy pillow of his mother, with intent to watch beside her during the night. Thus, by the wonderful and inscrutable ways of providence, were gathered together under the same roof those whose fates were so intimately connected with each other, the one suffering under the dreadful visitation of her crime, her children under its fatal consequences, while the infamous author of all had met, unprepared the fate due to his guilt, as to his barbarity towards the woman he had betrayed. Not long had the hapless Lorena retained that unworthy love for which she had made such sacrifices, the injured Loredani no more. Her son Leonardo fled, no one knew whither. Victoria eloped the confinement in which she had been placed, no further obstacles, no further alarms to encounter. The passion of the ungenerous Ardolf cooled apace, not existing, not occurring to give it the required zest. He began to regret that he had resigned his liberty for a woman whose almost constant melancholy damped his spirits, or whose strained attempts at gaiety, but reproached him for expecting the effort. He became first indifferent to, and at length even hated the wretched victim of his artifices. He retained no longer traces of the fascinating elegant Ardolf, but degenerated gradually into the harsh and savage tyrant. Grief had stolen the roses from the cheeks of Lorena. Remorse had faded her graceful form. She was no longer an object of triumph or of envy, to exhibit to the worthless ephemera of the day, and she was reproached with her broken charms. The gay, the infamous seducer became weary of his acquisition. By degrees he absented himself from her, for lengthened periods, mirthful and joyous went away. He returned to her gloomy and severe. Next, frequent infidelity struck the barbed arrow of despised love into her soul. Bitter reproaches and at length personal ill-treatment, even to a degree of barbarity closed the list of her outrages and filled up the measure of her punishment and misery. It was these dreadful moments, or in those of cheerful solitude, smarting to agony beneath the pangs and indignities of brutal tyranny, that the wretched Lorena reflected upon her past conduct, upon the husband and the children she abandoned, upon the husband, the fond husband that for her had died, 
upon her children, hating her and flying from her presence. Ah, terrible and severe must be the compunctuous visitings of the mother, who, stepping aside from the path of honor and virtue, becomes amenable for the distraction and death of adoring husband, for the crimes and miseries of her offspring. A while faintly may you triumph, sad daughter of infamy. Glitter a while the vain and despised pageant of the hour, but short-lived is your ignoble glory. Bitter and permanent your punishment and regret. Among other vices restored to by the vile and grateful Ardolf was that of deep play. In this he engaged with the spirit of enterprise, so hazardous and wild that the fortune became rapidly impoverished. It was the conviction of this that determined him to quit Venice and retire to Switzerland. In haughty terms, he expressed his intention to Lorena, and brutally added that his exile from the gay world would be pleasing if unaccompanied by her. But the lost and broken-hearted mourner replied not to the insinuation. To accompany him, she felt unavoidable. For spite of his baseness, spite of his inhumanity, she loved him still. On their journey notwithstanding, he continued to treat her with the utmost harshness and severity. Not till the period of their encounter on the Alps, however, with Leonardo's band, had he resorted to personal ill-usage. Thus did it happen that his aggravated crimes and cruelty caused him to rush upon his fate. For terror of her life, excited by the violence of his blows, extorted loud shrieks from the terrified Lorena. These shrieks attracted and guided the robbers to the spot. The barbarian was immediately secured by ruffians less ferocious than himself, and deservedly met his death by the hands of one on whom he had entailed misery and destruction. Such are the retributions of a just providence, which, though sometimes tardy, are generally sure even in this world. End of chapter 31. Recording by Anthony Gerges of the Tide Pod Podcast.